0: Soon after the terror attacks of September 11th, John volunteered to deploy to Afghanistan. He walked into his superior's office and said, I need to go. In one of the most harrowing engagements of Operation Enduring Freedom, John was part of a highly trained team on a combat mission to establish a secure position on the peak of Gar Mountain. In the early morning of March 4th, 2002, John and his teammates were preparing to land onto the mountain when their helicopter was struck by heavy machine gun fire and a rocket-propelled grenade. They were under serious attack. As the helicopter lurched away, Petty Officer First Class Neil Roberts was flung out of the aircraft and onto the top of the mountain as the helicopter crash-landed into the valley below. It was a horrific crash. The team survived the crash, and without hesitation, they volunteered to return to the mountain. They wanted to get Neil. They landed into a deep snow and heavy machine gun fire coming from three different directions. Couldn't even see so many bullets. At over 10,000 feet, they fought the enemy at the highest altitude of any battle in the history of the American military. John Chapman was the first to charge up the mountain toward the enemy. He killed two terrorists and cleared out the first bunker. John left the safety of the first bunker to fire a second enemy grenade at another bunker. As John fired on the second bunker, he was shot and fell to the ground and lost consciousness. Even though he was mortally wounded, John regained consciousness and continued to fight on, and he really fought. We have proof of that fight. He really fought. Good genes. You have good genes. He immediately began firing at the enemy, who was bombarding him with machine gun fire and rocket-propelled grenades. Despite facing overwhelming force, John bravely and fiercely battled on for over an hour as another American Quick Reaction Force helicopter approached. John engaged the enemy and provided covering fire in an attempt to prevent the enemy from shooting down our soldiers, our airmen, and that helicopter. In this final act of supreme courage, John gave his life for his fellow warriors. Through his extraordinary sacrifice, John helped save more than 20 American service members, some of whom are here today. And we also remember the six others who, along with John, gave their lives on that snowy, really, really cold Afghan night. Petty Officer First Class Neil Roberts, Specialist Mark Anderson, Sergeant Bradley Crows, Senior Airman Jason Cunningham, Technical Sergeant Philip Svitak, and Corporal Matthew Commons. Our nation is rich with blessings, but our greatest blessings of all are the patriots like John and all of you that just stood, and frankly, many of
1: Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I have a special guest on with me for this podcast. Uh, he is an author, and he is also an Air Force uh, Special Operations veteran, uh, Dan Schilling. Dan, how's it going?
2: John, it's going really well. Thanks for having me on this morning.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I appreciate you doing this. Um, uh, you wrote an important book uh about the life of John Chapman and, and the situation in which uh, he was awarded the Medal of Honor. Um, and uh, you've also been in the Air Force for uh, a couple of years and, and did some things uh, in the special operations community there. Um, so I'm really happy to talk with you. Um, and you know, it's interesting. Uh, I think the book came out in 2019. Um and and then maybe, you know, the, there was talk about the book coming out for I don't know a few months before that or a year before that at least publicly. And um, and then there was a video on YouTube of the uh, the action in which Chapman was awarded the Medal of Honor, and uh, you narrate that video, and I think it has like over fifty million views right now, which is it's insane.
2: Yeah, it's a uh, uh, yeah. I'm, I made that video um, to support um, the message of getting the book out there. You know, a lot of people go to YouTube. I'm not a big YouTuber, but what I found astounding was, you know, I, I put that video together in a in a weekend, figuring I would post it. I didn't know you had to have your own YouTube channel, so I ended up with a YouTube channel only because I was trying to get this out. To the public but that it's such a powerful video yeah uh, it's a long video it's in 40 seconds or something and uh yeah, people we've had comments from i think it was uh 56 countries mm-hmm. places you wouldn't even expect like pakistan or afghanistan or saudi arabia uh, russia that it just leaves an impact on people and i i think it's, so I was really surprised by that. Uh, not that it wasn't a powerful story, but to get that kind of reaction from people and people still continue to buy that book and people still come back to that video all the time.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I've watched the video at least like five or six times. And, um, and you know, it there's a thing on YouTube where people record themselves reacting to a video. And I think
2: yeah, that was another thing I'd never seen before. Yeah. Suddenly, we you started to populate. You get a lot of those if your video does well.
1: Yeah, so it's crazy. So like, there's you know, the, your the video itself has like fifty million plus, and then there's so many different people reacting to watching the video, um, and it's it's so interesting because there's people like um, from all different walks of life, like uh, people who are into like hip hop videos or people who are um, you know like. Foreign military guys who who have YouTube channels, so it's just really been a, a fascinating thing to watch, um, and 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 then what what really makes it like just a, a powerful thing is is to watch how John Chapman was just there there fighting, um, and you know, being wounded and and continuing to fight you know, for, for such a long time by himself. It's just really remarkable, but we'll, we'll get into all of that. Um, so let's start with uh, what motivated you to join the air force.
2: Well, I actually, I actually started 31 years in the military and most of my time was in the air force as a, as a combat controller or, or a special tactics officer, which is the, the officer version of, of, of a CCT. But I actually started in the army as a paratrooper grunt. And I, I didn't really have plans to join the military. My, my, you know, my my parents had both been in the Second World War. My mom was a nurse. My dad had been in the Pacific Theater, and my uncles had all been in the war. In fact, my one uncle had landed on D Day, got shot on the beach at Omaha, and then um, went back, wounded severely, went back to the front uh, right before the Battle of the Bulge, and was, was killed in action there. So I grew up with a lot of oh wow with a lot of that, you know that and. John Wayne movies and and Lee Marvin movies and stuff like that. But I didn't really have any plan to join the military. And so what got me in, though, was the girl I was dating at the time reached into my chest, grabbed my still beating heart, ripped it out and then crushed it. And I was like, hmm, I was looking for something to do, you know. And uh, on a lark, I just bumped into this Army recruiter who told me, we will pay you to jump out of airplanes. Now, it had never occurred to me to jump out of airplanes. And and if you know anything about me or people have Googled me, you know that I like parachutes a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and and I just thought, you know what, man, I'm just going to – I was couldn't go to college. I wasn't ready for that. I just was looking for something to do, and I thought, I'm just going to try this out. And, man, once I landed in the military and I realized this is kind of a meritocracy. Like, you can – it doesn't matter where you come from, what you what your circumstances were – and you didn't even have to be American citizen. It's, it's a path to becoming an American. It's this field that's primarily level, and not it's not all equal, of course. But you can you can find your way and make your way. And once I landed there, I realized this is a good spot for me. And then I found my way into combat control and and uh, and the special operations community that I really 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 understood um, its uniqueness. And I, I never looked back you know, from there, you know, I went back and forth to different jobs I actually got out of the military one time, but man, it never left me. And for 31 years, that was, that was kind of my identity. It's not anymore, but it was for a long time.
1: Uh, so when you say you were doing different jobs, those were different jobs within the CCT community or?
2: Well, yeah, you know, there's, cause combat control is the air force's version of a of SEAL or green beret right it's 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 their ground force where, and it has a very unique capability that the others really don't an, an expertise but but the but the foundations are the same you know jumping out of planes diving the other infiltration methods how to move in a small team how to how to fight in a small team how to communicate all those things that you learn how to do and um Yeah. So for me, that was, um, you know, you find your way into the white special operations community, which is where combat control is. And that's what I did for a few years. And then you have this, depending on where you are, if you're a Green Beret, you go to Delta Force. If you're a SEAL on a regular vanilla SEAL team, then you try out for SEAL Team 6. Those are both the preeminent units of those special operations communities for the Army and Navy. In the Air Force, it's a unit called the 24th Special Tactics Squadron, which is not even classified, uh, its missions are, but the unit itself is which is different from Delta Force and Team Six, which technically are even classified. You're not even supposed to know they exist. But um, that's where you go if you want to get into black ops. And so I went there. Uh, but at one point, after a while, after I think 10 years, maybe almost 11 years, uh, I got out of the military completely and and was trying to figure some things out but didn't only did that for a short time and found my way back in army special forces for a half a dozen years before coming back into the air force and you know and doing the things i did in the latter half of my career which most of which are highly classified but so i sort of it was not really a line it's not a a line you could follow on a graph my career it was really more of a I just went here and went there and followed the things that I found either interesting or challenging, and that's just kind of defined my, my, my path.
1: Okay, so that's interesting. So when you say you went to Army Special Forces, you were at Green Beret or you were just working with them?
2: No, so I didn't go to the Q course. Uh, when I, I got out of the military, I came back to Utah, um, was going to college, and I got into the Guard. Uh, SF unit, which is a 19th group. Oh, okay. Here. So I was doing that as a side gig, but I had a lot of Halo experience back then. This is in the, in the 90s still and before the war. And um, like I really became the Halo subject matter expert for the 19th Special Forces Group, even though I was a staff sergeant, but I'd come out of JSOC and my kind of control time and had thousands of jumps and they didn't have that kind of experience. And a lot of this was just a lot of specialized tactics and techniques and procedures that i brought to that community um but i made it really clear i'm like hey i'm happy to be here but i'm not looking to go to the q course like i'd already been through the air force's version of that and i wasn't going to carve out another year and a half of my life to go through yet another pipeline but everybody was happy like i enjoyed it they would enjoy it so i i did that for you know a bunch of years and that's where i ended up getting a commission and then the war came and some opportunities uh, came my way that people sought me out to help stand up a special tactics squadron, which is where that's a combat control unit. And so I, 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 I got recruited to go back into the air force to stand up a unit. And uh, that's what I, I actually created a unit from scratch and ended up being the first commander of that unit. And, um, and that, I did that for a while. Then I went back to the black side, which is really what JSOC is. Um, and finished out my career doing that by running another, Uh, special mission unit. And so that was, you know, it's a weird kind of career path because I was Army, Air Force, Army, Air Force. And I've been enlisted and commissioned in the Army and I've been enlisted and commissioned in the Air Force, all four. I don't think anybody else in the history of the military has been (laughs) commissioned in in two separate services, but, you know, it's not like it, it helped me advance. It was just like, that was just my path. And I tend to follow paths that Aren't
1: as predictable as maybe some other people. Yeah, definitely <laughs> Okay, so that's very interesting. Um So when you when you stood up the squadron on the on the white side uh, Was that just because the CCTs were expanding?
2: Yeah, it it, it was and um, there was some opportunity space there and There was because um, it was it's a um, it was an international guardian. So again, it was another reserve component and I got hit up by this two-star general who I had no idea who he was. And, uh, this, I get a call out of the blue. This is right after the Olympics. He's like, Hey, we want to stand up a special tactics squad and people keep throwing your name around. And, you know, uh, we want to talk to you about that. And at the time I'm a second Lieutenant in the army SF and I was running the rigor detachment and, and the support detachments for the 19th. Cause I wasn't, a, I didn't go to the Q course. so I wasn't on an ODA. And uh, I'm like, well, and I'm in Salt Lake and he's in Oregon. I said, I'll tell you what, general. this is literally what I said. I said, I, the only thing the Air Force hates more than a prior army enlisted guy is a prior army commission guy. And I've been both of those things. <laughs> so I don't think you can get me in the Air Force, but if you want to fly out to Utah and buy me a beer, come on out. He's like, yeah, I do. And he did. And I know it sounds cliche, but we drank a bunch of beer at Squatter's Pub in Salt Lake City. And on a beer-stained napkin, literally, because no one had no, no books. We not no cell phones. This is, you know, 2002. I didn't even have a cell phone yet. And um, we mapped it out. I'm like, here's what you would need to do to stand this thing up. And I said, if you can get me back into the Air Force, I guarantee you I can create a squadron, which is a lie. There was no way I could guarantee that. But I thought I could pull it off. And so they got me back into the Air Force, and um, and I did manage to pull it off. It was a bit of a... I don't know a shell game or a Ponzi scheme. Like the whole house of cards was going to collapse. And then, strange as it may sound, you can't make this up. Hurricane Katrina in 2004 makes landfall in New Orleans and devastates the city. And uh, out of that, I got funded for about 12 million dollars, and I needed 15 million bucks to stand up the unit, just in equipment. And um, we got that money from Congress. So then that's what saved me probably from going to jail, but the unit stood up and I ended up the commander and away we went.
1: So the, um, just for the audience, like the, the CCTs, um, uh, like on, on the white side, like the CCTs would work with like green berets and, and, uh, Navy SEALs and, and Rangers and, um, and probably Marsak. Um, but on the, the tier one side, you guys work, Uh, directly with other Tier 1 units, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. You, you, You spend your whole life integrating into somebody else's team and culture, which is part of the challenge and maybe even appeal of that kind of life. But yeah, our guys, we call them a combat control team, and the acronym is CCT for that reason. The great irony is in the modern era, we don't deploy as a team ourselves. We end up getting parsed out to other people and, you know, I've worked with the Australian SAS. I've worked with the Germans. I've worked with Israelis. I've worked with, um, yeah, you know, a host, you know, the Yemen, Yemen, you know, you work with other people's militaries all the time. And, uh, the byproduct of that is you get exposed to the best of other people's tactics and, and expertise. And the worst, you, you also get exposed to somebody else's culture. If it's not a if it's not a good culture, you'll get exposed to that too. So, it's it's interesting because uh, from a human psychology standpoint, you end up you end up being this stranger gets plugged into somebody else's tight knit team, and they're like, and you're an Air Force guy, right? So, you get the oh, it's the Air Force guy thing. Um, and guys who've been around a lot recognize that. These combat controllers have the same capability anybody else does. We do everything anyone else does. If a SEAL does a mission, some kind of infiltration method doesn't matter what it is, combat controllers are 100% qualified to do whatever it is those guys are doing. Which is not true of a Green Beret or a Ranger. They cannot; they're not trained in their pipeline or as part of their normal training cycle to do wet deck operations or over the beach infiltrations. You know, or close circuit breathing, we do all of that. People, that's what people don't realize about the Air Force and combat control is: these guys do everything that other people do. But what they really bring to the battle space, which changes the game uh, in both dire situations and as part of a strategy, is what they bring that nobody else does. Nobody, and I do mean nobody on the planet, is the expertise to meld. The precision and power of air power with the situation on the ground to such a degree of expertise that they can call in airstrikes within friendly lines and have done it on many occasions and managed to pull that type of dynamic, high stress situation, combat situation, um, and, and still pull that off and, and not be killing off, you know, not have a fratricide injury. Uh, incident, and it's a it's a really weird way to live and it's a really Strange way to go to combat as part of somebody else's culture So it's it's just interesting because you learn how to adapt to other people and it makes you a very versatile individual
1: yeah, I remember the the uh, the first time I'd heard of uh, combat controllers was actually reading uh, Tom Greer's book uh, kill bin Laden Um that's a great book. Yeah. yeah, that's a really great book, man. Yeah, and he was a great man. Yeah, and unfortunately he you know, he passed away um I think in twenty sixteen yeah. maybe, um, uh due to due to cancer, but uh, he was a Delta Force commander, um, and he led the uh the US effort to kill bin Laden in uh two thousand one, uh, which was spearheaded by uh, Delta force. Uh, there was some British commandos with them and a, and some green berets as well. And I think there was a, you know, one or two combat controllers or, or maybe more. Um, and, uh, and he spoke about the combat controllers in such a, a, a positive way. And, you know, uh, and when he talked about them, I was like, who are these guys? Like I'd never heard of uh, combat controllers. And that led me to sort of, uh, read up a little more about it.
2: Yeah, well, it's, you know, what's funny is the combat controller, uh, really, that was uh, plugged in with him uh, that everybody um, that everybody talked about um, is a guy they called the Admiral, um, and his name's John, and uh, he. I was his instructor at Combat Control School. I know him very well. Uh, he's a good friend of mine. He's retired now, but... Um, you know, that's, it was really when they first went up there, man, there was, there was nobody else up there. It was a very, very small team. And it wasn't, there weren't, he didn't have, he didn't have radar Green Braves, He just had Delta Force and really this combat control and some CIA stuff. And um, yeah, it was a remarkable mission. And that's a, that's a, that's a typical example of a situation a combat controller can find himself very dynamic no real plan in so far as well this is how it's all going to go down when you're up in Tora Bora in december of 2001 using a russian map right a soviet era russian map to try and figure things out that's and you're trying to put bombs in the caves on the mountainsides at high elevation in the winter in afghanistan it does not get anymore and you're really behind enemy lines the sense that the U.S. didn't have presence everywhere at that time. Man, that's a very dynamic situation. It's so hard to put a bomb on the side of a mountain or in the mouth of a cave. It's just this amazing skill. Nobody in the world can do what these guys do. And uh, Mike, the, the admiral, is, um, is one of those guys. And, uh, you know, he's just part of the community I come from. I, I couldn't be prouder of that guy to even just be his friend. The good fortune to have been his instructor at combat control school—that's yeah, just luck of the draw. I put through a lot of really amazing guys. You know, the first guy to do a combat tandem jump in uh, in history—you know—is another student of mine. And these people that you get to know in the course of your career—that you're either teammates with or your instructors of, or they were instructors of yours—you um, know—it's just—it's one of the benefits of a life like that.
1: So compared to. Um... You know, other special operations units. Are there less combat controllers?
2: By far, margin. There are fewer combat controllers that have ever served in the history of combat control, which predates SEALs and Green Berets, by the way. Than there are SEALs walking around today. Mm. They are so few. There's usually just a couple of hundred at any one time. I think we're, we we hit like 500 guys. But there are thousands of Seals, there's thousands of Green birds, right. right? And uh, um, so, yeah, it's just a very, very small community. You know, if you're a combat controller, you're going to know another, every other guy, or you're going to know a guy who knows a guy. I, I realized we had turned a corner, because no one ever knew who we were. That people just, even now, today, people have no idea combat controllers exist. It's one of the reasons that I wrote the book Alone at Dawn was to get this out to the public because these guys deserve to be recognized. But, uh, you know, I I realized we'd turn a corner when I met my first fake combat controller. You know, people meet fake SEALs, in Queen Berets, guys (laughs) would try to pass them off. Nobody tried to pass themselves off as combat controllers. Like, (laughs) oh, it wasn't in the public world, it wasn't cool (laughs) enough because no one knew what they were. And I realized, especially after I met my second one, I'm like, because you know all you have to do is ask one or two questions at the most Mm. and you're going to know this guy was not a combat controller and um, I was like huh how how funny is that you know (laughs) I guess we've arrived in the public realm (laughs) but uh, I still feel like we don't these guys I know I was one of them but as the author of this book and and sort of the unofficial voice of combat control um, I you know it's I still don't know how, how well far we've come, but that's kind of my purpose with that book is to honor these guys. And I want Americans to know the book isn't really like just for military history buffs or special ops buffs, man, it's for Americans because Americans can, should know these guys are out there because here's the other thing that makes combat control so different from the other services. When a SEAL platoon's in trouble and they're getting, they need air power and it's gotta be precise or, and they're, they're, being overrun by the enemy or they're severely outnumbered which really happens and they call for a combat controller because a SEAL might be able to call airstrikes but he can't do it the way a combat controller would not with that expertise so when that a team like that's in trouble they call for a combat controller but when a nation like haiti collapses they don't call for seals or green berets but the first guys to show up on the scene this is a true our combat controllers, when Haiti collapsed the first time, because it did it again a couple of years ago in 2010, literally pancaked by that earthquake, the first of the world's first response on behalf of the entire planet, which was converging there to try and help this country stave off starvation and and and, and dysentery and all these other things that are going to come about and and and, and deliver food, it was done by U.S. Air Force combat control. And there wasn't even an officer involved. It was led by a master sergeant named Tony Travis. And that guy had the, the international airport at Port-au-Prince up and running in 28 minutes. This is an international airport. They just landed, took over, and we advertised we can get your international airport up and running in 30 minutes or less. He stepped off the plane, hit a stopwatch, and he established two miles of runway many miles of taxiways, an airflow plan and was receiving airplanes in twenty eight minutes. Wow. No force in the world can do that. And that's this humanitarian aspect. You know, skills are not humanitarian. Maybe some of the guys are, whatever, but it's like that's not their mission. Our guys have this unique dual role. They're the most lethal individuals to walk a battlefield in the history of sixty thousand years of human warfare. But at the same time They're out there doing these humanitarian missions, and they do it in, like, developed countries. Fukushima, when the tsunami hit Japan and they had a nuclear meltdown and the the city's still not safe, the people who arrived on behalf of the planet to open up the airfield to get supplies into Japan and from within Japan wasn't a Japanese force. It was Air Force combat controllers. That's amazing. It's an amazing thing, and and people need to know about that because these guys are the most unique individuals in special ops in so many ways. Not to take anything away from these other communities. Love Green Berets. I spent a half a dozen years in an SF group. Got some great friends there. Had some great missions with people like that. But you know what? These guys are the most versatile people, man
1: yeah that that tsunami in Japan was pretty bad, you know and it's it's just it's just interesting you bring it up because I actually watched a video of it like I don't know a month ago um, like videos from uh, I don't know I guess b- buildings in Japan uh, where it got hit and and you just see the wave coming on shores pretty crazy but okay, so I'm glad you brought up the humanitarian aspect because I, I wanted to ask about that. So the, you know, in the Air Force Special Operations Community, there's the combat controllers and the PJs, the pararescuemen, Um And I know that they do a lot of, you know, disaster relief kind of work. Um, so, you know, like the PJs are, are actually like, you know, going to rescue people, right? Like they've worked in... Uh, natural disasters in the U.S., uh, natural disasters elsewhere. Uh, are the CCTs doing rescue work, or they're setting up airfields, and you know, to bring in the rest of the rescue force?
2: Well, that is rescue work, but you have to remember, a PJ is a is a is basically a paramedic, and they're very specialized. They're the world's best at aircraft crashes and recovery mm. and other things like that for for folks in combat combat search and rescue CSAR missions and they're medics that's what they do so as part of that to execute that mission you are rescuing people para rescue it's even in the name but for instance we'll go back to katrina and the reason i got 12 million dollars i deployed guys from a unit that i was standing up who didn't even have equipment yet to new orleans and they were on Interstate 10, on the elevated sections, cutting down light poles with quickie saws. They're running all the infiltration, exfiltration, and airlift for these American citizens to rescue them. They're doing it in conjunction with the PJ's. PJ's, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's, a, there's some overlap and there's some lines of demarcation. The guy who's going to call in the air, aircraft and, and have 10 aircraft in an air traffic control pattern because every air tr- every combat controller is a certified Air Force air traffic controller. They go through the entire air traffic control school like any other air traffic controller in the Air Force. So they're bringing all that capability. So they're running that part of of the mission. But they're also in the Zodiac going out with the PJs and and picking up people. But once you get there, if somebody's got a medical problem, the PJ is the guy who's going to take care of that. So, because that's his job. And and he does that well, trauma med. And um, so... Uh, it's just this blend, and that's why in a Special Tactics Squadron, in Air Force Special Operations, you have PJs and, and combat controllers and TACPs, and you also have the Special reconnaissance for the weather guys. So there's a there's an amalgam, and you can kind of think of that uh, as an analogy similar to what you have on an ODA. You have an 18 Delta, he's a medic. You have an 18 Charlie, he's a comm guy. You have 18 Bravo, he's a weapons guy. So you got all these different kinds of flavors of humans that do different components of a mission. Um, but anyway, that's, uh, you know, combat control has its, its portion of that. And um, it's the air power. And that's really what, you know, that's that's what makes it so powerful. I'll show you one, one more anecdote. A guy named Will Markham, uh, another really dear friend of mine. In 9-11, the first ODA... Special Forces Green Berets to go into Afghanistan, the first two teams. One team had combat controllers and one did not. Triple Nickel uh, was the one that had Calvin Markham and Calvin, um, or Will, uh, we all knew him as Calvin, it's one of his call signs. But anyway, man, he's behind enemy lines. It's his first time in combat, as it was for these Green Berets. And they're in Afghanistan to call in the airstrikes in direct response On behalf of all of America, the first airstrikes called in America's longest running war were done by this guy, Will Markham. He killed more people in his first 26 days of combat, using his expertise than any SEAL in the
1: history of SEALs
2: ever. Ever. And it was his first deployment. He did, I think, 11 deployments.
1: That's crazy.
2: But just his first case in 26 days, it's a staggering number of people. And he turned the course of these battles, you know, on these airfields where he's calling in airstrikes basically into their position as best he could. And he's looking to the green beret team leader and he's like, Hey man, are we going to do this thing? Am I going to call this airstrike in right now? And the guy's like, if you don't, we're all dead. He's like, okay, I got it. And he's calling in airstrikes from B-52s at 40,000 feet. And he lays them right on the enemy at their doorstop, saves the entire ODA earns the, the silver star, which, by the way, in my opinion, should have been an Air Force Cross, but we won't bog down on why the Air Force sucks at giving medals for valor mm. to guys on the ground. And uh, and he he turned the course of an entire battle all by himself. The only guy in that in that entire battlefield that could do what happened there. So that's a anyway. I share that story because it's it's a demonstration of what these guys can do.
1: Yeah, I know. Like in particular in the. In those days, in the, in the you know, the initial response um, to 9-11, and like particularly in, in Tora Bora and the battle there and, and some of the other battles um, that took place, uh, they dropped a crazy amount of uh, bombs on the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. Um, and... Uh, Yeah. And then there was, it was a few ODAs and I'm pretty sure each one had a a combat controller or, or at least uh, a a few of them did. And then, you know, they were with Delta Force as well. Um, Okay. So you, um, you know, one of the other things that is is probably not well known is that combat control was involved in the Black Hawk Down incident. Um, uh, Can you talk about your involvement there?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's books been written about it and movies. And and I actually wrote a book with one of my Ranger uh, teammate buddies, Matt Eversman, and um, to chronicle our, our experiences there. But yeah, there was, you know, what you really had, there was two real, real ground elements involved in what was happening in Somalia. And there was four major units that were really involved. So you have the Rangers who were doing blocking positions and, and, and support of Delta, which were doing the surgical, Strikes which really capture missions uh, of the Somali National Alliance militiamen that we were targeting on behalf of the United Nations. And integrated into these forces, there were really – and then they have a a combat search and rescue capability with two PAGAs on it and and another combat controller. There's – on the battle space, there's four combat controllers. So there was two guys with the Rangers, one guy with the Delta Force, and then one guy – on the CSAR package. And actually there's a fifth one. There was we had one guy in the in the C2 in the command and control helicopter overhead with the Delta Force Commander. He had his own combat controller. And the reason that works the way that is, is combat controllers as as the world's foremost battlefield communicators, tactical, you know, communication specialists, as well as air power, is we can communicate with each other. So on that battlefield, so my job, I was actually with the Rangers on the vehicle convoy. And there was also Rangers on the helicopters that were inserted by fast rope to provide blocking positions. And then there was one, uh, Jeff Bray, another really good friend of mine, teammate of mine. He's with Delta Force, the C Squadron on the assault. Like when everybody hits the ground and people are doing what they're doing, the Rangers are blocking off the enemy, not letting anybody out of the cordon and keeping more enemy forces from coming in and Delta Force is taking down the building and the Ranger vehicles and the convoy for extraction are coming up. We're, we all can talk to each other. Uh, we're not only really listening to like the helicopter nets and the command and control nets and the inter teams for Delta and the Rangers. We're also talking to uh, amongst ourselves and we make decisions amongst ourselves about how to allocate out air power and how to communicate and all the things that matter to us. What's really ironic about that is the Rangers, and the Delta Force guys, and even Task Force 160, the world's best helicopter pilots, who we were fortunate enough to have with us, they have no idea we're doing all this other stuff behind the scenes. They just think we just do what we do. They have no idea the level to which these guys are communicating and helping shape things on the battlefield. So, you know, my role on on that day or for that deployment and I don't call it an incident. I call it a well-executed, successful mission, by the way. Um, I know in the public that people go, oh, the Black Hawk Down incident. And I'm like, hey, fuck off. Because this mission was 100% successful. Not because of me or even combat control. Everybody did their part. Because this was the finest joint capability task force the U.S. had ever put together to do something this high risk and this high consequence. 200 guys on a battle space hundred of which are about on on the ground in a city of a million people in the middle of the day where they've been fighting a civil war for two years. And you go straight into the middle of the heart of the city to the enemy stronghold and try and capture a dozen guys in the middle of the day. Nobody else could do that. I'm so proud of the people that I, I, I got to serve with in that case. It cost us 18 dead comrades. And this is a really heavy price to pay and uh, you can never recover from those losses because we all feel them, and the families in particular. But the fact is, these men, man, we pulled off a mission nobody else could have done. And you know, nobody knows how many people on the other side we killed. a thousand, two thousand, nobody knows, but a highly disproportionate number. That's the capability of American special ops and and we just play them one, another I think key but small role in a mission like that combat control is.
1: yeah it's you know with the um, obviously the movie Black Hawk Down was a a success and um, you know I I believe it mainly speaks about the role of Delta Force and the Rangers Um, and and then but the movie was based off a book uh, which was also very successful um, same title, Blackhawk Down. Uh, what, what was the name of the book that you wrote with uh, Everman? I'm excited to talk to you all about a company I'm partnering with called Converso. This is the future of private communications. Today's popular messaging apps claim to be totally private, mentioning things like end-to-end encryption. What they don't tell you is how much data they actually collect from you. Remember, these are the most popular messaging apps out and they sell themselves as private, secure messaging. They're collecting things like your IP address, your location, your latest transactions, your email address, your photos, and your videos, the locations you visit, and your device activity data. With Converso, there are three core principles of privacy, end-to-end encryption, no storage of messages on the server, and no user or metadata is collected. One of the amazing features that Converso has is the Sensors Off feature. This deactivates your phone's camera and microphone. Another great feature is the Screenshot Protect. When enabled, completely deactivates the ability of either users to take a screenshot. What we're going for is completely untraceable communication. So if you want a chance to chat with me, we can chat on the Converso app. You can send me a message at one five 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 eight six zero one five eight four. You can also visit w dot dot com slash download dash conversio dash global dash recon. Uh, so this is a phenomenal app for anyone who's interested in private communications. I think most of us are. Whether you're doing sensitive work or you simply just don't want anyone knowing what you're doing, uh, this is the app for you. Before we continue, I'd like to talk to you about this week's sponsor, 4Patriots. Drought, inflation, and even new policies are pushing America's food supply near its breaking point. That's why survival food is more important than ever. Create your own stockpile of the best-selling 4Patriot survival food kits. It's not ordinary food. We're talking good for 25 years survival food. Handpicked right in a family-owned facility in the USA and giving jobs to over 200 Americans. The kits are compact, sturdy, water-resistant, and stack easily. They have different delicious breakfast, lunch, and dinners. You can make these meals in less than 20 minutes. Just add boiling water, simmer, and serve. And right now, you can go to 4 and use the code RECON to get 10% off your first purchase on anything in the store, including this three-month survival kit. You'll get their famous guarantee for an entire year after your order, plus free shipping on orders over $97. They're called 4Patriots because a portion of every sale is donated to charities who support our veterans and their families. Just go to 4 and use the code RECON to get 10% off. That's 4 Use the code RECON. Start building your own stockpile today. Battle of Mogadishu. Okay.
2: And it really it's just, it's on the heels of Mark Bowden's Black Hawk Dam, which is really the definitive chronicle and history of, of what happened there. And what's funny is you and I would not be talking had Mark Bowden not written that book. And I helped Mark with the book uh, to a pretty significant extent um, with a number of things. Um, it's his book, and we were wrong. I didn't write stuff, but but I, I was out of the military at the time. I was out of JSOC, and back then I was more comfortable in talking about what we had done, because it's hard to get information out of Delta Force, especially back then. But, you know, the, the military and the law, especially the Army, had sort of brushed this operation under the rug because of the, the negative publicity the perceived negative um, publicity because we lost 18 guys and and so it, it we'd all just moved on with life and you know you plug it along you know a lot of us have done we've done many other missions done a lot of things around the world this is just another mission it's a significant mission if you were part of it but um it took on a popular culture uh it really captured the public's attention as it should have. It's a remarkable story of defying the odds and still coming out successful. Um, Had he not written that book, and then Jerry Bruckheimer and Ridley Scott made a really pretty good movie. And man, boom, 30 years later, here we are talking about this still. People are still very captivated by that that mission. I don't always understand it because there's some really amazing things that have happened in the war in Afghanistan in particular, but also Iraq that heroism of people defying odds and coming out on top or even tragedy, but this really captures the public's eye. So anyway, um, that so Matt and I wrote a book, it was really just six stories that were first person accounts of, of what guys went through uh, while they were there. And um, that was the first book I, I, I helped to,
1: to write. And were you always a, a writer? Or uh, did, is that something you got into <laughs> later on?
2: Yeah, hell no. As it, Like most guys who find their way in the military, like scholastic aptitude and appeal were very low on my priority mm. list or ability. Um, I mean, yeah, I went back and I ended up with three college degrees in my life. And, you, you know, you learn the value of education. Yeah. Um, so I was never interested in, in writing books um it wasn't until i became a, like a part of history you know somebody it was in black down you realize suddenly that holy shit i'm part of this thing that people think is historic and to me it's a personal experience it's something i shared with my teammates and i realized the power of stories really on the heels of that and uh so i i started with a magazine article and then matt came to me and said hey listen I, i've been approached and i really want you to help because i know you can you can can write. And um, so we we jumped on that, I guess, grenade together. And from there, I didn't write any books um, for a very long time. Uh, I was back in the war, and I was back, you know, doing my thing. But I knew after that, that later on, I would want to write books. And so when I retired in 2016, um, I was writing novels. Uh, I was just enjoying time with my wife and trying to recover from I think just 30 years of pretty abnormal experience um, and uh, books just became another way to have an impact on people that was positive and um, and it, it's a miserable way to make a living I don't recommend it to anybody <laughs> but it, uh, if you can do it there's um, I, I think it does a lot of things for you as an individual too and I just I believe in books a book saved my life. That's not hyperbole, man. The book that saved my life. And, you know, movies, you can say what you want about a movie. You can come out of a very powerful and moving movie. doesn't matter if it's Black Hawk Down or Out of Africa or God forbid it's a Marvel movie because I think those are just ridiculous yeah. because the characters are all bullshit. But, you know, people come out of a movie and go, wow, that was a really great movie. I've never heard anybody say that movie changed my life or that movie saved my life, yeah. but I know many people who have been impacted by books, and that's why I sort of dedicated my life to to reaching other people and writing books.
1: Yeah, no, books are definitely um, you know a step above movies um, for sure. Um, okay, so then, so you retired officially in twenty sixteen. Yeah. Okay, so then you spent years, you know, fighting the wars in uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, then.
2: Um, Yeah, I was actually at the time, uh, especially the latter half, I mean, we've all been to Afghanistan. But uh, I, because of the nature of of my expertise and the kind of work that I had done, I ended up doing places, working in places that were predominantly, well, we were doing things that were not... uh, as visible as
1: Afghanistan mm, okay. and Iraq,
2: I and mean, I some other things like, you know, I, I worked a lot in Thailand and Bangladesh, of all places, and Vietnam, you know. But um, so you just, it's just, it's a weird, it's a weird thing when you get into certain circles, you just find yourself doing things that are different. I think some of the most interesting things I've done in the military had nothing to do with carrying a gun.
1: Yeah,
2: and even in special ops. If you're really doing certain things, you know, people think special ops are like, oh, a guy's jumping out of an airplane with a gun. I'm like, yeah, okay, sometimes. But really, special operations is designed to do something unique that has a disproportionate impact or a high value, or it's a very sensitive situation and we need a delicate touch. Well, delicate touches don't involve guns, man. So... This this just this whole other world I really can't talk about that allows you to do things that I think also contribute to American foreign policy, but also the betterment of the world through Special Ops. And again, no guns involved. I'm a very peaceful person. Yeah, I've I uh, have killed people, but uh, I'm not particularly proud of that because I'm not proud of that at all. Um, It's one of the things that I struggled with. Some guys do, some guys don't. And Buddhism is a you know was part of my solution. And even that, I really encountered Buddhism when I was doing special ops and working in other countries. And I realized, man, here's a philosophy that I can really make sense to me. I can get behind this. And um, it led me down a different path. That only came about because I was doing the work that I was doing. So, you know, life's a funny thing, isn't it?
1: Uh, yeah, that, that's pretty fascinating. Yeah, <clears throat> Buddhism is, is a pretty interesting, uh, you know, bit of human history and, and uh, a way of life. Um, I, I kind of brushed yeah. yeah. on it uh, on my visit to Japan. Um, and I, I,
2: I, yeah, which is really Zen Buddhism primarily. Yeah, versus um, Theravada, which is what you get in, in Thailand, mm-hmm. and they're just different, different, different takes. On, on, on a foundational uh, philosophy and, and religion, you could even really call it a religion. Yeah, some people don't. Some
1: people do. Yeah, that's pretty fascinating stuff. Okay, um, so then uh, let's talk about uh, how you got involved in um, in writing the book uh, Alone at Dawn, which is you know about CCT and and uh, John Chapman.
2: So I was I would retired. I left the military behind me, uh, you know, and my natural landing pad would have been to maybe go to work for the CIA or some other agency And because I've been working, you know, these places my last years in the military. But I didn't want any of that. I didn't really find it peaceful. I wanted to just, you know, find some peace, man. I was still looking for some peace. So my wife and I moved back to Utah. We're living in Alta, which is a ski resort, which by the way, we got like 20 inches last night. So we're looking at this major snowstorm, which you're keeping me from skiing, but I won't hold that (laughs) against you, John. uh, uh, And so I'm writing books and um, I've done a lot of work with the Australian SAS and a a buddy of mine came to me and was like, Hey, I want to do some work down in Oz and I want to connect with the Australian special ops community. They call it so command down there. Um, and I'm like, yeah, okay, I can I can help you with that. So he he flies out to see me in Utah. He's like, well, what are you doing with your time? I'm like, well, I'm, I'm writing books. And um, he knew John's sister, who I eventually took on as my co-author. And he's like, she's been trying to write this book for years. You got to help her. And I'm like, well, I'm not. Interested. He's like, why don't you help her write the book? I'm like, ah, I'm not interested in doing that. But I I don't want to I'm going to leave like my military behind. Like I I'm happy to talk to her, but I'm I'm not going to jump onto this project. And then we talked on the phone and she hadn't really ever written a book. And she'd been trying working on this for a very long time, didn't really know where to go and how to go about it. So I explained to her about agents and how a book deal works and how the book industry really is. And uh I got off the phone. I'm like, Hey, good luck. You can call me if you need some help, but uh, you know, I wish you the best. And something I didn't know John, I didn't know John well, but and I'd seen the footage back when it was still really classified, that is the video you've now seen and so of many other people, yeah, you know, I didn't sleep for two weeks, man. And I was talking to my wife about it. She's like, I don't think you really have a choice here. So I called her up. I said, listen, Hey man, we're going to, I'll do this book, but it's not going to be your brother's biography. And I said, first of all, John wouldn't want that. It's about John and John's community that no one knows about. So I spent the next two and a half years, basically seven days a week writing that book. And, um, I'm glad that I did. It took a lot out of me. Uh, there was a lot of frustration. John was not, at the time, he didn't have the Medal of Honor. This is now fall of 16, and in 17, and so his medal was not even, you know, wasn't wasn't. It was part of the equation, but it it was not a foregone conclusion. And I remember my publisher, my editor, were talking about this, like, well, what? Because they they, you know, we were talking about, hey, we think that John's going to end up getting an upgrade to the Medal of Honor. And I remember them very clearly one day asking me, well, what happens if he doesn't get the Medal of Honor? And I was like, I don't understand the question. What What do you mean? What happens? It's like, well, what will that do to the story? I said, it does nothing to the story. I'm writing the history. I'm writing the facts. If he doesn't get honored by America, that's a, that's a problem on their end. It doesn't change what he did. And I said, I'm, it doesn't change what I write in the book. It'll change what we can put on the cover. How's that? They're like, oh, okay. And uh, ultimately, John's Medal was upgraded as it should have been. And, um, uh, so that's how I ended up writing that book. And it, it took me off novels and damn it, man, I still haven't gone back to publishing any of my novels because uh, I've written another book now, which is, you know, nonfiction and, um, it's just, you know, life I've, I have found maybe for your listeners, you know, this have, will have some value. Like it never turns out the way that you think it does. And the really significant events in your life always tend to come from out of the blue or from the extreme end of a position. And, uh, you know, something you had, you like for me, I'm like, ah, there's no way I'm going to write that book. And the next thing you know, two and a half years later, this book comes out and makes the New York Times and you know, suddenly people, my IQ went up 35 points. It was really cool because once you make the new times, everyone thinks you're yeah. smart. So I'm like, yeah, I'm a lot smarter now. And, you know, anyone who knows me knows that's not true. I'm the same, same dude I was before. But it's just really interesting how your life can turn on these on these corners that you never see coming, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I've been aware of the, the situation with John Um and the, that whole battle of, you know, atop the mountain there. Um, but, you know, it wasn't spoken about him getting a Medal of Honor until, uh, I don't know if it was like 2016 or 2017. Um, yeah. And so basically what happened was uh, did, did someone find the footage or was it that they had a new way to, 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 clean up the footage and look at it, because it, it, it was shot from a, a CIA drone in, you know 20 years ago, and the, you know obviously the technology wasn't as good as it is now. So how did that come about?
2: Well, it came about, like many things, through a convergence of actions and just circumstance. Um, the footage was gone for a long time. It actually had been with a combat controller, because after it happened, some of the intel guys, the CIA guys, I can't remember which, dropped by the CD and dropped threw it at him. And was like, Hey man, here's some footage of, of what happened on Taker Gar. guard. He's like, okay. And he threw it in a footlocker and there it sat for years. And it's, and he realized what he had years later. He's like, Holy shit, I need to bring this up. So it, it circulated into the air force side. But so I had seen this as 2010. I, I, the first time I saw that footage was 2010. And, um, um so you know, you think you know what you see, but you, you you have to really corroborate stuff and put some forensic type capability on things like this. But that, that's all technology, and and in the end, as people made a lot about whether this was John or that was John, and this was Neil Roberts, and this is what the seals were doing, and who's what, none of that really matters because we know John was alive. You know, some people still fight that battle. Oh, he he died in in, in the early in the few first few minutes, but we know that's not true for a number of reasons, and I'm, I'm happy to talk about those. But to back to your question, the sec- at the time, so 2016-ish, the then Secretary of the Air Force, Debbie James, um, this is the power of the press. And, and Air Force Times articles like, hey, all these Army people and Navy people are getting all these amazing awards for battlefield heroism. The Air Force doesn't have any of these in this war. Are, is the Air Force screwing its people? The answer to that, by the way, is yes. <clears throat> but it's it. She sees this article and she's like, huh? Why is that? Why do we not have none of our guys earn the l- level of a Medal of Honor? And she doesn't know. She's not an expert. She's responsible for six hundred thousand people. She's an administrator. She's not a fighter. So she asks the question. Well, when the Secretary of the Air Force asks a question, it mo- activates a whole bunch of people. So the Air Force goes back. She's like, here's the criteria. I want to go back and look at any medal and see if there's something that we missed. It has to be new information that allows us to determine that there might be an upgrade that's worthy. Well, all these medals ended up in the Air Force Special Operations Command at AFSOC. And they did their due diligence, and they came back and said, the only thing that has changed that we think might be due for an upgrade is this circumstance around this guy named John Chapman way back in 2002. And that's what started the ball rolling. Now, to, to go back into what people like to bog down on some people, who are either nefarious or are just assholes who say, oh, John died early on. We know John was alive because after the Seals left him for dead and Neil Roberts, by the way, they left two guys for dead. They didn't just leave John for dead. They left the other guy for dead, too, one, another one of their own. John Chapman was calling out on the radio and, and some Delta Force guys just three clicks away and another Air Force combat controller, a, a teammate of John's who knows John's voice and call us we were hearing these radio calls from John long after the SEALs had left the mountain and retreated. And so, like, for that reason alone, but when you get into the forensic pathology, all of which I have, by the way, I did exhaustive research on this thing. I had access to things that no regular writer would have by virtue of, of being who I was. You know, John had 16 gunshot and shrapnel wounds and contusions from hand-to-hand fighting. When you go into not people have seen this in television shows or whatever, but when somebody experiences trauma like that, your body is immediately trying to reheal it. So you can tell if something has happened, post mortem or anti-mortem, just by virtue of what the body's condition is at the when you do the autopsy. And John had had all these wounds. And it goes back to something you said earlier, John. You know, it's amazing that he he fought as long as he did. And I am astounded to this day. I've known a lot of guys who've been shot, you know, and I've, I've been shot too, but I haven't been wounded because I body armor. And, uh, you know, you you see what people go through w- when they have this. And really, the first two rounds he received when he saved all the other SEALs' lives, which is what their witness statement said for many years until they recanted them much later on, was that, man, when John took those first two rounds, they were mortal. Like, he, he was, he was going to die from those but they were slow. Um, But all these other rounds that he received, what's really astounding about his heroism makes it so inspiring and devastating to me, even now, 22 years later, 21 years later is that when he has all this body damage and he's in the process of dying, he's not going to live very much longer. When he hears that rescue helicopter coming to the mountain. He clearly knows where it's gonna go. And I can't say what he thought, but I can say what he decided to do because we saw him do it. This guy climbs out of a trench, his only hope for survival, takes the fight to the enemy to try and protect 18 guys he didn't even know. That's amazing. And in the process, finally he gets shot through the heart and and he dies. And, but he, he helps protect this helicopter from keeping the, these Al Qaeda forces from putting in a heavy PKM machine gun in position or moving RPGs up to where they could get, you know, rounds onto this helicopter. And yeah, the helicopter got shot down and crashed on the summit thanks to the amazing piloting skills of the, the 160th pilot. But in fact, the guy who saved all those people was John Chap. And that's, that's just, it's amazing. So, um, that's the story, man.
1: Yeah, it it really is incredible, and and for anyone listening who hasn't uh, watched the video, you really should. It's on YouTube. Uh, If you just type in John Chapman Medal of Honor, it'll probably be at the top of the search results, Um, and Dan narrates the video uh, explaining, you know, what happened step by step, and it's really—I mean, a lot of people died, and John Chapman, you know, he died, but— it's something like we've never seen before on video. Like it, it's really something that like you would think is only happens in a movie, like a Rambo movie or something. But it's really insane. And um, uh, you know, people are people online are, are like pretty funny um, in, in comments and stuff like that. And and one of the the funniest comments I've seen. Uh, uh and, and it's not a funny situation, but uh. Someone wrote on the video that John Chapman wasn't stuck on the mountain with these uh, Al-Qaeda fighters, they were stuck on the mountain with him and (laughs)
0: That's
2: a good. Yeah, it was was great uh, I've never seen you know, it's funny. I don't read book reviews. I don't read critiques I have never read a comment about that video. You know people uh, We get requests I know because my assistant goes through that She'll she look at stuff. Um, there's a lot of requests like, "Hey, make more videos." I'm like, "Well, I didn't really have a plan to make this video. Like, you know, I, I did it because I I felt it was the right thing to do to support the book." Since then, I've I've made two other videos about combat control that I felt were appropriate. But um, you know, I don't I don't ever read the comments, but I I know we get a lot of them, and um, uh, but I've never responded to a single one, either positive or negative, because. I'll tell you, this is one of the things I've learned in my life at this stage is that um, you're not going to make everybody happy. Yeah. And I, you do the best that you can um, when you're on any project, at least I do. You know, I wanted to make the most powerful video about John that I could. I wanted to write the most powerful book that I could. And if you're listening to this and you watch the video and you're really moved by that, you should pick up the book yeah. because you will learn so much more. And, um, and that's my, my purpose as an author is to do that. And I, I you know, that's, that's the best you can do in your life is just try to have that, that positive impact on people. And, um, man, it resonates still. So uh, I'm, I'm very proud of that. But people who don't like it, there's nothing you can do. Once you write something, it's already out there. And people have a right to judge it. People can say your writing sucks. I, I'm, there's a lot of people I'm sure who don't like my writing. And, all right, fair enough. You have a right to tell me my writing sucks.
1: Yeah. Okay. Uh, can we talk about uh, a little bit about the the circumstances that led up to uh, this battle and, and and why they were um, on the mountaintop there?
2: Yeah. You know, and, and it goes back to one of the things that, that I realized I, I ended up needing one of the reasons I felt I had to write this book. I knew the other people involved. I knew some of the fields. I knew... Um, Delta Force guys. I knew the Delta Force commander. Um, I knew the other combat controllers, obviously. And, uh, you know, at the time, there was a guy named Pete Blazer. I respect him a lot. I consider him a friend. And A lot of people in your space probably know Pete. Um, But, um, and he can be a polarizing figure. People either love him or hate him. And uh, I'm, I'm in the former category, but he was running things behind enemy lines there. He was doing a damn good job. And, but it was he was chafing against the staff, which is always the problem in any community, and um, the middle management people at JSOC and whatever. you. And he was running these operations, and he was doing a good job. He knew how to prep things. He was thinking about it the right way. And what really led to the convergence of SEAL Team 6 with John Chapman on top of this mountain was the leaders of SEAL Team 6 at the time were like, hey, man, this is a pretty good opportunity. We need to get in on this. And so they're trying to force guys into this equation. Three SEAL teams went in behind enemy lines um, on, for prior to Operation Anaconda. And, and the, that's the backdrop for this whole history was the, the, the U.S. was going to do this hammer and anvil type thing that the conventional army was going to force the Taliban and Al-Qaeda up against the foothills and then pound them with their power and they would all give up, And which is never going to happen because that's not how those people think. And behind the lines, part of the campaign plan was, hey, JSOC and the special operations community, and at the time it was just Delta Force, would be calling in airstrikes. By the way, those airstrikes were being called in by the combat controllers attached to those guys, not by, say, Delta Force itself. But anyway, that's the backdrop. And John's mission was just another one of these missions that was sort of rushed into the battlefield. against the advice of the commander on the scene, Pete Blaver. And they, there's some politicking that always happens and they're like, Hey, we're going to replace Pete and we're going to put a Navy seal in charge of what we're going to try and do down there. And I don't want to even bog down on all that shit, but the, but the outcome then became those guys were not prepared for that mission. They hadn't had enough time to plan or, or rehearse what they're going to do. And for God's sakes, you don't land a helicopter right onto your observation post behind enemy lines for all the obvious reasons all those things were forced down the throat of the seal guy leader on the ground, which is a guy named slab by his leadership, who in my opinion are the people responsible for the fiasco that happened up there. And that's what led to John being on there. So when they, this helicopter with John and these handful of seals arrives on the top of this mountain in the wee hours of the morning, it gets shot down by the enemy because they already occupied the hill. And, uh, and the helicopter goes off to crash in a controlled crash, and Seal Neil Roberts, who wasn't snapped in, fell out of the back of the helicopter and into the enemy's hands. He fought bravely, I have no doubt, but he's in the middle of the enemy, and they killed him. And, but now the team leader and John Chapman and these other guys are left with a squadron. We don't have a helicopter that works. What are we going to do? we got a guy that's left up there. we got to go back and get him. And that's what they went to do. And that's what led to what you've seen in the video. Um, when they landed on the helicopter, on the on, just below the summit again, man, they're walking into a hornet's nest because they were all, the enemy was already converging because had, the Americans came and they left one of their guys here and we've killed him. We know they're going to come back because that's what Americans do. It's a predictable thing about us and it's a good thing. Um, so now they're walking straight into a hornet's nest and uh, the outcome was... Um, a handful of Americans paid with with their lives, including John. And all these guys were heroes. Another Air Force guy, the rest were Army guys and, and one SEAL. And uh, that's that's how that mission came to pass.
1: So you you mentioned earlier, um, you know, that there was some contention about, you know, at what point did John die, and things like that? Can you talk a little bit about that aspect of, of this story?
2: Well, we've touched on that. You know, we know John was alive because he was alive. You know, people can argue against that fact, but he was calling out on a radio on a net that another combat controller would pick up on. By the way, the seals wouldn't have picked up on this, who had already retreated down the mountain, and you know, he so. He was alive. Just we could argue whether he was or not. and We could also argue whether the sun came up in the east that morning. All of the facts are the facts, but there are just certain elements of people that were very sensitive to any type of black eye publicly. Like, hey, we left a guy for dead. As I was like to point out, you didn't leave two, a guy for dead. You left two guys for dead because nowhere in the after-action reports is Neil Roberts mentioned. And uh, so, I don't want to bog down in a lot of that stuff. The fact is some 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 hard decisions happened on the top of that mountain. The SEAL team leader at the time was doing the best that he could, and so was everybody else, including John, including Neil Roberts, the guy who fell out of the helicopter. And bad shit happens in combat. What would have made the whole situation better was just say, yeah, man, this was unfortunate. This is what happened. And we thought John was dead, and so we and we thought Neil was dead, so we retreated. You just say what happened. And that's what I do in the book. I'm like, well, this is this is clearly what happened. I'm not no one's guilty of a crime. It's just that that's what happened. But there were some leaders at SEAL Team Six who did not want to admit this fact and didn't want a public black eye. And so you got some resistance. And it was really unfortunate. So I'm not really interested in bogging down on a lot of that. But in the end, John earned it. John was recognized with the medal he did earn. And to me, that's all that matters, man. And um, to be able to contribute to his legacy, uh, it's it's an honor for me, and I'm very humbled to have been the guy who ended up doing that, really.
1: So uh, when the video ends, uh, you know, it ends with you, you know, describing that, uh, you know, John was shot through the heart and he uh, he died. Um, but then uh, so at some point after that, um, if I can recall correctly, more rangers uh, arrived on the summit, and and they were able to take over the the mountaintop there.
2: Yeah, well, that's that's the helicopter that he was defending. It had a it had a quick reaction force populated by and led by a, a ranger. Um, there was another. They had an integrated uh, Air Force tag P with them, and then there was a uh, two PJ's. Uh Carrie Miller, who's a friend of mine, and uh, another guy named Jason Cunningham, who was killed in action, and a combat controller named Gabe Brown, who was the guy who really saved the day up at the top of that mountain because, again, he's calling in airstrikes right against their position using fast movers because now the sun has already been up, uh, and so the AC-130 gunship that had been overhead has departed. Mostly because it ran out of fuel. They stayed until well after sunlight. DJ Turner, the pilot of that plane, was just, and that whole 14 man crew are heroes, in my opinion, because they basically were refusing orders, pretending the radio was fucked up, whatever, to return to base. They're like, the base commands changed, like, you need to get your plane out of there because AC 130 gunships don't fly in the sunlight. And they stayed until they ran out of, out of fuel. But Gabe, you know, that's that whole package that John protected. And so they brought about the the maneuver force firepower of a ranger platoon minus. And what they really brought with them was the coordinated uh, massive amount of air power that you can provide having one combat controller in the mix. And Gabe earned a silver star on top of that mountain as well. And um, so that's – so the rangers then ultimately, you know, get reinforced, take the hill, and, um, and, and that concludes – the battle but you know when John got shot that the fatal round that killed him came from the back so he was looking you know in every direction and um, uh, you know again that's how we know John didn't die when some people like to maintain he died with the two rounds that hit him in the chest because the round the bullet that killed him hit him in the back and uh, went through his you know exploded his aorta his blood pressure dropped to zero and and he expired on the battlefield but it's an amazing testament to just the human spirit that John just exemplifies that he, I can't even imagine the amount of, you know, one or two gunshot wounds is so the damage it does to your body and the tissue damage around where that, those bullets hit. Anyone who's been in combat, who's seen this or experienced it knows just how devastating a single round to a to a limb or or, or part of your body is man he'd been shot in and, and shrapnel wounds but shot at least nine times i forget the number now maybe it's in the book I've, I've got all that stuff it's been a while and i don't concentrate on this but like nine times man until so remove the one that killed him eight bullet holes and he was still functioning okay that's 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 like a, a ridiculousness of Hollywood movie yeah. because in real life we'd be like, yeah, no way that guy could survive. And even now, I, I have no idea how John had the tenacity, the perseverance, the dedication, and just the courage to do what he did knowing that if I climb out of this little ditch that I've been defending for 45 minutes on my own, I, he had to know he was going to die or he probably maybe even knew he was dying. I don't know. No one knows. No one will ever know but um but anyway he did it and he saved those lives and and uh he will forever remain i think one of America's great heroes
1: yeah and you know anyone who is familiar with history and military history in particular um you know there are stories of medal of honor recipients from world war 1 world war 2 uh the korean war vietnam and um you hear these stories of just remarkable bravery and, and in many instances or, or most where, uh, guys are awarded the medal of honor. They, they end up dying in that action. And, um, you know, you, you hear these stories of just crazy, uh, heroism, you know, guys are charging enemy positions. They, they kill a bunch of the enemy. They survive, they save their team. And then eventually they, they die. And, and um, uh, to be able to 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 witness uh something like that is it's just truly remarkable um uh so yeah it's it's a it was such a you know unfortunate that john died but uh remarkable that we're able to see that uh you know see what he did and see the dedication uh you know of some of these men in, in combat um so yeah, so I I highly recommend uh, the audience to get uh, Dan's book Alone at Dawn uh, about the you know some of the history of the combat controllers and John's story uh, in, in in great detail. Um, I actually have a, a a audio copy of it, so I've been listening to it, uh, and that's also a, a great way to consume it. Um, Okay, so then you've also written uh, a book about uh, awareness. Can we talk about that a little bit?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I've got a, I got about another ten minutes, and I apologize. I've got another yeah. obligation sure. on, on the heels of this one, but you know, for me, you know, where do you go after a book like that? I haven't published any of the novels I've written um, for a number of reasons. Mostly, it's just my agent and strategy, and I'm playing a long game. I'm not in a rush, but. Uh, you know, I wrote a book on how not to be targeted by criminals, and it's not self defense book, man. I, a lot of this is it's a philosophical approach to how do you avoid having to use martial arts or a gun or a, or, or an edged weapon or a mace to defend yourself, because that's really where that's where you can make the difference. Because when you're in a if you're confronted by a criminal, the difference between positive outcome and negative outcome is very narrow margin, man. Uh, and so, especially if you're not a trained expert, which is what the vast majority of people are. And it became my way of trying to like give back to society and write a book on how to develop situational awareness and how to learn to reconnect with your intuition in order to understand, you know, how not to become the target or victim of a crime. And, uh, it's based all on really situational awareness and intuition and, uh, I, I found it a very satisfying book. It was another book my agent forced me to write, which was the same thing that happened to Lona Don, because he's the one who said, too, stop what you're writing on novels. You need to write this book about John Chapman and these guys, because I think that's going to be a very powerful book. He did the same thing with this book. He's like, you need to write a book on personal safety. I'm like, ah, man, I don't want to write a book on personal safety. And I was racing down in Baja, Mexico, for the Baja 1000, and our race truck got stolen while we were 600 meters away. I, I watched it wow. happen. I was like, son of, a, son of a, you know, it's one of those things where you're really pissed off. And uh, I realized I can't believe we let that happen because the fault was mine. And part of my approach to personal safety is, Hey, you know, hotels, airports, your, your police department, like a lot of people have responsibility for your personal public safety as well. But at the end of the day, You you can't delegate your own personal safety. You have to be responsible for yourself. And here's a way to go about that. And you don't have to be James Bond. You don't have to be Bruce Lee. You just have to be aware. And so, yeah, that's – I spent another, you know, a couple years writing that book, and it came out. And uh, if you go to my website, you can – you know, danschillingbooks.com. It it, it populates pretty quick. Uh, If you're looking for me, I'm, I'm easy to find on the internet which also always stuns me by the way, cause who am I? I'm just another dude. But um, like, I, I encourage people to go there because I, I really believe in this book. And, um, and so anyway, that's, uh, that was my last book and uh, I'm writing a book on resilience. I think at the moment is kind of what I'm chewing on and and another screenplay that I, I like being involved in, so.
1: Awesome. And then, so f- final question, um... I remember reading a few, maybe, I don't know if it's like two years ago or three years ago, there was talk about uh, a movie coming out about, uh, uh, Yeah, is that still yeah. happening? or? It,
2: it will happen. We had Jake Gyllenhaal as the actor who was going to play John. He left to do another movie. Um, in the end, it's Hollywood. I, uh, I believe we will have a movie. Um, I, we're back to casting, but... If we cast this year, you film next year, movie comes out the year after. so it's a couple it's a couple of years away yet but I, I do believe it'll happen. There's a really great screenplay um, written by a brilliant man, uh, Michael Gunn. and uh, I'm excited to see this come out because like Combat Control, this movie about combat control is not a typical war movie. It's gonna be so unique and I, i'm I'm very If I could conclude on anything, I'm excited about the opportunity for that movie to reach a lot of people, because hopefully then they'll come back and read the book and learn about because it's a Hollywood movie. It's a dramatization, and that's great. But I want people to come back and know the real, real story about not just John, but all these guys. That's my hope.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to that. Um, uh, You know, I did, you know, like I said before, you know, what these guys did was really remarkable and um you know, uh, a bunch of people died that day, but, you know, what what took place, you know, on John's part and, and some of the other guys there was really remarkable. Um, so, yeah. So, you know, thank you for coming on here. I know you're busy. Uh, I really appreciate uh, talking to you. I know the audience is going to appreciate, uh, you know, learning about CCT and, and some of your history and, and uh, hearing a bit more about, uh, you know, what happened that day on the mountain.
2: Well, then, John, it's been my pleasure to be on the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for helping spread this word. I think it's a really, really important story to share with all Americans and even people around the world, because a lot of people have benefited from what these guys do. And uh, it's just been great uh, having me on the show. Thanks again.